This is Professor Jagdish Sheth. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Jagdish as a person. Professor Sheth is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Sheth is an AIB fellow, as well as a fellow of the American Marketing Association, Association of Consumer Research, the American Psychological Association, Academy of Marketing Science, and the International Engineering Consortium. He is the recipient of all four top awards given by the American Marketing Association. Jagdish has written over 250 journal articles or book chapters, eight book reviews, edited over 50 books, and has written nearly 40 books. He sits or sat on the editorial review boards of top marketing journals and served as a chair, co-chair, editor, and co-editor of many journals, conferences, and doctor student consortia. He has consulted with many government institutions, multinationals, and served on the boards of major companies listed on the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ, as well as many non-profit organizations. He has received numerous awards, such as the AMA Lifetime Award, William Wilkie Award, and the Charles Coolidge Parliament Award. Thank you, Jagdish, for joining us. Thank you for inviting me, Elgaz. Uh, Jagdish, uh, what did you want to become when you were a child? Uh, when I was young, uh, there were two very different aspirations. One was to become a good cricket player. As you know, cricket is a national sport among the British Commonwealth countries, and especially India. When I was growing up, it was the major sport. And the other one was a good writer. Surprisingly, I don't know why, I enjoyed writing as a very youngster. And so I thought maybe I'll become a professional writer. Wow. Uh, how old were you when you first wrote your first book? When I what? Uh, first book. How old were you when you wrote the first book? Uh, no, the first book itself. Actually, I wrote essays quite a lot. Uh, especially essays competing uh, for writing essays on Mahatma Gandhi, who was our national hero, for example. I won all the time. I wrote poems. I wrote one-act plays. But the book I wrote was only after I became an academic. Perfect. Uh, can you remember the uh, first earliest moment of awareness as a child between domestic versus international? Oh, I clearly remember that because... Uh, the first thing I realized was a radio. In my days, there was no television. And the radio was by Philips, which I knew was not an Indian company, but was a Dutch company, even though they behaved like Indian company. And we had a good radio because that was the only way you could listen about what's happening in the world. And of course, Indians, like many cultures, are very fond of songs. So you basically have an entertainment with somebody singing, recorded, obviously. And so Philips brand name was the first one that came in my mind as a foreign brand. Uh, how did you decide to be uh, in academia? Uh, by accident. Hmm. I never thought I would be in the academic world. I came to the States to do my MBA, one year MBA, with a focus on production management, hmm. automation, mechanization, my brother had a business of making jewelry boxes and they were all done manually like a cottage industry in a contract work where we'll give the raw materials 
to the contract workers, they will go home, make the boxes, jewelry boxes, and in the boxes, they will sell it to the jewelers for a, for a distributor. And ultimately, all the Indian jewelries, which are gold jewelries or diamond jewelries, they'll be placed in those. And we had a backlog of orders, surprisingly, because industrialization was taking place in the 50s. Uh, the factory, were, people were going to the factory work, which was better paying than doing the work at home. They'll be head of the household. And you'll have all these young boys and children working at home, like a cottage industry. So I told my brother that the only way out is to mechanize it. And he wanted me to learn all that stuff. So he sent me to America to do my MBA with production management, but that's not where I ended up. <laughs> I really got turned on by psychology in my MBA class on behavioral sciences. And the most influential psychologist in my career change was Abraham Maslow. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I studied. And I totally latched onto that one because I always, always was curious about what motivates people. So in the family business, what motivates workers, what motivates customers, what motivates suppliers, for example, that was always the question. The question is why, you know, not how or what. And so I turned to psychology. Actually, I took Maslow's theory and generalized it to the institution level. His theory was at the individual level. And I said, the same thing happens about four major institutions religion as an institution, family as an institution, corporation as an institution, and government as an institution. So in religion, I said, when you are basically a nation is dominated by safety survival needs, only thing that appeals to people is to say, God will protect you. God loves you as no meaning. So in many underdeveloped countries, many emerging economies, Masses go and pray the gods, whatever their gods are, including deities, for example, just to say, protect me from any calamity, make sure birth is taking place okay. You know, it's basically uh, getting safety needs out. But once the safety needs are satisfied, either by unions or by government, or however, now you have to change the meaning of God from God protects you to God loves you. But then if you go further up, when love and affection needs are satisfied, however they are done, now the institution of a God representation, a temple, a mosque, you know, or, or a church, for example, become actually burdening. They are too ritualistic. They impose things on me because now we are self-esteem independence. So now we have to say, God is with you. Do what you want to do, but God will be supporting you. An ultimate stage is God is in you. Self-actualization is a stage where basically God is what you are, representation of the God. Now that one took very well. I wrote a paper on that one. And the same thing in the organization area, which is what management area, at the lowest safety level, job security is the most important one. And people take advantage of that called theory X in human resources management area. And ultimately, McGregor was the one in the 50s who figured out that if you treat your employees better, like they're human beings, their feelings, their families, so you have to go from uh, job security to love and affection. 
And ultimately, I came up with a theory more recently called theory Y. So theory X, job security. Theory Y is love and affection, belonging. And the theory Y, I mean, theory U is what I clear, basically says empowerment. Today, nobody would like bosses. So the whole style of management has to change from I'm the boss, you are the subordinate, you tell you, you will do what I do, doesn't work anymore with young people. Basically, it's a coach style of management. A good coach gets more things out of the player and player is more important than the coach. Which means boss is not as visible as the worker. How are you unlocking the potential of your employee is very important at that stage when people are driven by self-esteem independence, essentially. So that worked very well. How did you connect to uh, the marketing side, the consumer research um, yeah. from psychology? How did you make the job? Exactly. So my thinking was that I will do my doctorate now in behavioral sciences in the school of business. My minor was social psychology. Eventually I joined the APA without a psychology degree actually. I was allowed to do it and I'll explain that. But interestingly, my very influential professor in management was Bernard M. Bass, B-A-S-S, who had a whole leadership theory and a scale called SIT, self-oriented manager, interaction-oriented manager, and task-oriented manager. I love him. He's a young scholar. He's, he's very important in my life. But then uh, he had no money to support me beyond minimum what I got stipend as a doctoral student. Mm -hmm. So when I joined the doctoral program, I was given $287.50 per month stipend. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> to bring my fiance to marry me, I needed from an immigration viewpoint about $400 per month. So I had to have extra income. And surprisingly, a marketing professor had that income a research grant and he wanted to work he wanted me to work with him because he was getting into the behavioral aspects of buying behavior so rather than understanding psychology of employees this is psychology of customers which is how i got into marketing and his name was john howard probably the best mentor ever i had in my life he took care of me completely in fact we began to start writing the book called the theory of buyer behavior. It took about seven years, but became a classic. And we just had a reprint of the book after 50 years. It was first published in 1969 by John Wiley. It became absolutely the, the mandatory reading for every doctoral student in marketing. Redefined the marketing itself as a discipline had a major impact. And I was a co-author John Howard, I was at Pittsburgh as a student, but Pittsburgh collapsed. It was a private university in those days, but it collapsed financially. And John did not want to stay in Pittsburgh. So he decided to move to Columbia University. He was a very well-known professor and anybody would have hired him. He was an economist who has turned into behavioral sciences. It was very much like behavioral economics we call today. So he went to Columbia University 1963, and he told me, would you like to come? And I have no idea. I said, sure, I'm, I just belong to you. So he said, come there, you can finish the book. 
So I just went with him as a research associate, postdoc kind of a position, not a tenure track faculty. And two years, I was totally in the Columbia Stacks library underground, nothing but six days a week, probably eight, nine hours a day easily. I worked just soaking up knowledge from all different disciplines as something relevant to build this theory of buyer behavior, which became very comprehensive and very impactful theory because we challenged the traditional notion that consumer make choices, which is what economists believe in. Whereas our belief was that consumers reduce choices. They don't make choices. They become loyal to a brand, loyal to a product category, and they buy through habit. And the only way to do choice reduction is by learning. So we adopted a learning theory platform from psychology primarily. And there are several learning theories out there. One that we had latched on was by Hull, H-U-L-L. He was a well-known psychologist, what we call rat psychologist primarily, experiments on animals, dogs and rats, etc. But he had a very interesting theory about how to organize the, the, the habit, how, how does habit form? So we had used that platform. And so how do consumers become loyal to brands became the ultimate uh, objective of that particular theory. And so, so I did that. And in fact, I often jokingly say that I was down in the coal mines, like in polieries, you know, when you go to coal mines, <laughs> where the black. <laughs> so in that stacks thing, I got probably mold in my lungs, you know. <laughs> it worked out perfectly, though. Uh, something that is uh, not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. Uh, yeah, first of all, I was born in Burma, which is now Myanmar. I'm of Indian origin, but my father had gone to Burma in 1916. Very good historical perspective for international business scholars. British Empire had become so big that somehow they decided to break it into two parts. One to run from Kolkata, Calcutta in those days, but now called Kolkata, running the whole empire. They, they divided Kolkata will manage West Asia, which is why we don't call Middle East in India. They call it West Asia, the Gulf countries and beyond, all the way to Gibraltar. And then, then they built a whole capital in Rangoon or what's called Yangon now. And that capital they built in Yangon is the one that they invited a lot of Indians to come because they trained Indians very well in government bureaucracy, accounting systems, writing, you know, filing systems, all this stuff. They needed massive manpower to run the bureaucracy. That which is why they, the British call East Asia, they call it. So from Myanmar all the way to Southeast Asia, Japan, etc., was their empire. So my father went there as a rice trader. Burma was the largest rice producing nation in the world, very fertile land, very large land also, by the way. Surprisingly, size is very big compared to let's say Vietnam or Thailand any other neighboring countries, you know, even Malaysia, for example, is much bigger than Malaysia. And, and so, so he went there as a rice trader. He brought his two brothers with him and a cousin brother, so four families. And I was born in Burma, last of the six children. And I was born in 1938 before World War II. And everything was going great, typical middle class, merchant class. 
And unfortunately, Japan decided to roll over all of Asia to conquer India. They wanted to conquer Kolkata capital. That was the idea. They wanted to conquer the British Empire's main capital. And they came to Burma in late 1940 with a very bad reputation about what they had done atrocities in uh, South Korea, for example, having women as comfort, uh, you know, women captive primarily. That's a typical military war issues. And so my mother was very worried because I had older sisters. They were like teenagers and she wanted to leave. My father was set because this was his livelihood. There's nothing else he could do. He was not even a high school educated person, but brilliant at the same time, entrepreneur. And so he did not want to leave. And by the time finally the decision had to be made, we just ran to the last ship, whatever you could carry and go back to India on that ship pretty much. And then eventually go back to our native place. So I'm also a refugee and I've gone through all the struggles of refugees that you see today in Ukraine, for example, or in Syria at one time, or in uh, you know uh, Africa, you see all the refugee issues. You're, you're, I've gone through all that pretty much. It's very tough life <laughs> at that time. No money, no money, and uh, and unfortunately, my sisters did some work for uh, other families to earn some money. My mother pawned her jewelry with other people, and we are being a middle class is the worst position because you can't declare you are poor. <laughs> you have to keep your face up, you know, and you use So ultimately, we struggled about eight years, 1941, when we came back to about 48 and tried to settle in different parts of India. And ultimately, I ended up settling in Chennai or Madras, as we used to call it in the old days, in South India. And it just occurred to me about three, four years ago that I've always been a minority wherever I've lived. <laughs> I mean, the, the state that I belong to, India is like Europe. You have a German distinct identity, French, same thing by language and by culture. India was organized accordingly. So I'm a Gujarati, but I never lived in Gujarat. So I've always lived in other kind of parts of India, which are basically like foreign countries. So Chennai would be as different to me as a Swede, Swedish person settling in Sicily. <laughs> <laughs> Which is interesting. True, true, That's very interesting. Most people, most people do not know that I was born in Burma. Uh, but if you didn't become an academic, uh, what would you do? Uh, what was the second best alternative career path for you? Most likely would have been business because hmm. I come from a business community. Uh, but rather than being a trader, I probably would have gone into manufacturing. Because after independence in 1948 and the constitution in 1950, India was strongly encouraging Indians to go into manufacturing rather than rely on foreign corporations manufacturing in India. Many British companies, for example, uh, were like Hindustan Unilever, which was a very large consumer packaged goods company or uh, you know, the uh, Metal Box, which was a great company, for example, ICS, chemical company, ICI, for example. They're all great British companies, but India wanted native sons to come out 
So there was a strong push to have your children go abroad, top universities in engineering, MIT, Stanford, not me, I'm very poor, but I'm talking about wealthy families. And the, and the notion was that after you study their engineering, you're coming back and you go from a trading company or a trading house to a manufacturing company. And that's the, that's the whole start of the Indian man. So I would have been a, probably a manufacturer of uh, jewelry boxes because that was a family business, mm-hmm. my brother's business, and diversify into something else. Interesting. Regrets, any regrets in life? Uh, not really. And the reason is that regrets come from the belief that you control your destiny. But once you believe that somebody else out there is blessing you, that somebody out there gives you the opportunities. And in that case, you feel like no regrets. For example, I think being an academic is the best thing that ever happened to me. Because that side of mine, which was creativity, writing, conceptualizing, would have been never realized if I was a businessman, for example. Let's talk about creativity. This is an important thing. In your life, you have been creative in many areas repeatedly. So how do you define creativity in research? How do you describe the state of idle curiosity of the mind? The creativity generally comes by challenging a prevailing wisdom. In other words, somehow you are not comfortable or happy with an existing belief system, either because you have observed something that are exceptions to the belief system, or there's an alternative perspective. There is another way. In other words, you see things that others don't. That's very key. You are, you are seeing things that other, it's, it's out there, it's like astrology. You know, it's like astronomy. There are stars out there, there are galaxies, but you don't know they are there till somebody discovers that. There are things about the, uh, the, the evolution of human life and through artifacts as we dig more and more into places, we figure out maybe the human Uh, development was thousands of years ahead rather than when we dated back, you know? So somehow it seems like discovery is a key one and I enjoy that very much. So for example, while we were all taught quite a lot in international area because of the Rudyard Kipling saying, East is East, West is West and twins shall never meet. So I often say he's dead wrong. He's not only dead, but he's wrong because (laughs) because the Asians have become very much like Americans, you know? Young kids are all the same today in Asia, whether it's Korea, Japan, India, China, makes no difference. They're just like their cousins over here. And of course, same thing, we have a huge Easternization of the world taking place, like the International Day of Yoga, for example, meditation, for example, you know, spirituality, etc. So East is not East and West is not West. He never thought about that possibility because he grew up in India, loved India, but he always respected Indian culture and he didn't want that to become British 
or westernized in many ways, right? Mm-hmm. However, it led to a discovery through research, surprisingly, that most cultural differences today, when you study anthropology, and I'm very eclectic, I study every discipline, just enjoyment, learning. And in anthropology, we have no theory of cultural differences. We have classifications, we have descriptions, we have typology, we have attributes, but there's no theory. Interestingly, why? In a theory meaning there's an explanation. And finally, I figured out there is an explanation of cultural differences, which is north-south angle. So I began to do research. So if you take the cheese content of Northern Europeans, it's about 40%. As you go further south to Mediterranean countries, Greece, Italy, etc., the cheese content, mozzarella cheese, Parmesan, is about two, two and a half percent fat content. If you go further south, the concept of cheese drops from all cultures all over the world. It is taken over by oil, like olive oil, very prevalent in Mediterranean countries, or palm oil, very common in Asia. Coconut oil is a big platform, or in Mexico, it's avocado. Interesting, right? Yeah. So I began, became very curious, and it's a very simple theory. If you all believe in the traditional history of human evolution, that everything began in Africa, Northern Africa, and migrated out, so as the people travel, genes travel further north to Arctic climate like Scandinavia or Alaska or you know uh, whatever the Arctic uh, climate, there is no vegetation. So genes to survive have to rely on animals for protein, fat, and uh, calories. Three key ingredients you need. So your diet has to become animal-based. In fact, Northern European diet is often called meat and potatoes. Only thing you can have is potatoes. No spices in the diet. Salt and pepper will be the only spice. As you go further south, percent of meat in your daily consumption of for calories, protein, fat, reduces and salads, nuts, etc. take over quite a lot. Vegetation takes over. And ultimately it becomes more vegetarian diet in many cultures. Meat is like a supplement, just a little. Totally so. And food is more spicy generally as you go toward the equator and the reverse happens on the Southern hemisphere, the same thing. So I began to study that. Then I realized, my God, it's very powerful theory because it is true not only for food, shelter, and clothing. So if you take clothing, again, what's the source for making garments? Only thing is animal. So you rely on uh, leather and wool. That's very popular among the Northern Europeans. But both leather and wool are very harmful materials in tropical climates, hot, humid climates. So you buy basically cotton or linen, plant-based. Also, Northern Europeans will have three layers, typically tight-fitting. You see the contour of the whole body. Warmer climate, one layer, free-flowing, so you allow hydration, dehydration throughout the body, perspiration, which is very key function biological. Color preferences. Northern Europeans have no color preferences except pastel, like what I'm wearing because they don't have dyes, the vegetation, to allow you to be colorful. Whereas you go to warmer climates, 
same color, whether it's Indian saris, African native dress, Latin American native dress, or Pacific Islanders, it's the same. We laugh at Hawaiian shirt, but it is a common phenomenon in Indonesia, It'll be very common among Indians, every place colorful. Similarly, I found on shelter. <laughs> Northern Europeans have to have air roofs because you cannot have that snow stay on that one, it'll collapse the roof. You have to build air roofs. Whereas you know, Italian villas or Spanish villas will be flat roof, only water. Indoor, outdoor, you blend it in the warmer climate. You mix it. Outdoor to indoor is the same. As, is, as you can see in California or Arizona, whereas in the northern climate, indoor and outdoor must insulate from each other, which is why we have a sort of a foyer as an area from extreme cold to the room temperature. Materials, northern Europeans will have only uh, wood and stones. Warm climate will have clay and bricks. In fact, wood is a dangerous material in warm climates because it creates termites and other insects. It's very, very obvious. See, yeah. I, I see that thing others don't. That's creativity to me. That's one element of creativity. And by the way, I found the same thing. Northern Europeans are very time punctual. Six o'clock means six o'clock. Warmer climate people, any time is a good time. If you are 15 minutes late, so what? And then it's again tied to the climate. <laughs> I mean, I can explain all these six, seven traits uh, that we talk about in international business about cultural differences, management style differences easily to this particular theory. So I finally say, aha, I have an explanation now. Why people behave differently, which is interesting. Just like Maslow's theory allowed me to explain institutions like religion, like family, like corporations, like government, etc. It's very interesting. So that's to me is creativity, one element, right? Perfect. Let's, let's just follow up on this thing. Uh, there's, a, there's a second element of creativity. I'll just talk about a little, which really is blending, uh, blending things that others do not think is possible. And that comes usually in chemistry. In chemistry, it's all about blending. Flavors, fragrances. A good chef is all about blending things, adding, subtracting. In the process, they come out with something as a finished product, which is a aha. Never thought that's possible. So to me, creativity has two components. Seeing things that others don't and blending things that others do not. Agnish, uh, yes, so we can talk about interdiscipline and multidiscipline, but I want to ask you uh, for the sake of time, um, what do you think <clears throat> about the, the future of IB research uh, in the next five to 10 years? Well, it's going to be interesting <clears throat> and uh, valuable. I think there are three areas that our IB scholars <clears throat> can think about the future. The biggest area obviously is the impact of digital technology on everything we do in international business. And there are two platforms that we need to study very importantly. Uh, one would be social media and their impact 
as influence, as word of mouth, as governance mechanism even on corporations or international business. So social media is a very key focused area. And the other one, of course, is e-commerce. So today, it's not, it's going, we are going from physical to digital. Digital first, not physical first. So today B2B in international business is all procurement is online. It's all online. You start by ordering first, then you build the product. It's a reverse flow compared to the way we organized in the industrial age where you have the raw materials, then you do the value add, you store it in the warehouse, then you ship it out, go to the point of uh, uh, distribution, commerce and consumption. This is really ordering first and going backwards, which is like an Amazon is the future, not necessarily brick and mortar retailers, you know? That's a significant paradigm shift because it changes everything. The whole processes in international business changes or what we are struggling right now is the supply chain problem, which also says right away that contrary to what we did before in the nineties, where trade was a very key way of creating economic growth because economies were not going advanced countries. So we opened up trade, we had the WTO we created, we abolished the GATT system, for example, which means we began to specialize and locate different parts of value add in different countries and outsource quite a lot. Outsourcing became a major activity of every contract manufacturing to Foxconn, for example, by companies like Apple. Now what you see is that surprisingly will be more localized distribution, distributed manufacturing or supply chain, but vertically integrated. Very key change taking place, which means I go back backward integration, upstreaming as much as possible. So I not only make a product in electronic, but I also make the chips. Doesn't rely on somebody else. This is changing the whole paradigm. So that's digital technology and transformation of the corporations or any institution and individuals is one key. Second major area that one has to focus in IIB area is sustainability. And I'm talking about environmental sustainability. In one of my books, I wrote quite a lot that the rise of emerging economies will not be constrained by capital as it used to be at one time or by technology, neither technology nor capital because both are available today, but it'll be the environment. Environment will slow down because environment is nature. It's biological. And biological species have the knack of passive resistance. They don't cooperate with you. Whether you are human beings or animals or birds or plants. Very powerful thinking. Sure. And during industrial age, we never thought that everything is biological. Coal is biological. Copper is biological because it takes thousands of years, but it's a biological process. And therefore nature is biological. So biological sciences are very important to understand, which during the industrial age, we focused more on physics, mechanics, and chemistry, for example. So there's a whole paradigm shift about sustainability with a new lens one has to look upon. But so 
ecosystem is very key in other words, you know, in biological sciences. So that's the second area. Then the third area, very important is the new geopolitical order. In other words, the future of corporations will depend not only just on advanced countries like the G7, but actually many emerging economies, for example. China is the largest market for any goods in consumer products. India is the second largest market. And there's no way you can ignore China or India either as markets or more likely as emerging competitors. Uh, China probably has 20 to 25 large multinational corporations of Chinese origin. As you know, China basically was outsourcing place for American brands for European brands, but today Chinese have their own brands going worldwide. And that is Lenovo, for example, in PC business, hiring appliances that's knocking the doors of the top, top manufacturers. You find similar brands in steel, in aluminum, for example, banking, for example. So these are huge multinational corporations, often state enterprises, Huawei technologies, Xiaomi, for example, and eventually consumer electronics products, it just goes on and on. I've been absolutely astounded how large expansion Chinese corporations have truly become global, just like the Americans after World War II, British before World War II or World War I even, same thing. And similarly, Indian corporations. For example, the largest aluminum company, sheet aluminum company, in America called Novellis is owned by an Indian aluminum company. Tata as a group, T is number two next to Unilever. And Unilever right now wants to sell the whole T number one company with several good brands. And it's very interesting to watch if Tata will make a play for Unilever brands. In that case, Tata becomes undisputed number one T company in the world. We never thought about multinationals from emerging markets. And what is their strategy, whether they're from Mexico, for example, or Brazil. Brazil is interesting because you find Brazil has owns actually uh, Budweiser. <laughs> it's interesting, you know, and then they're also the South African brewery owns Miller Company. We thought only advanced countries will buy out emerging country manufacturing capacities or brand names. This is the reverse that's taking place. So we need to study the new ge geopolitics. That was uh, helpful, thank you. About the advice, the mentoring part, uh, what, what do you think, what are the common mistakes that you see junior faculty um, and uh, young scholars, young PhD students usually make? Um, I think there are probably two or three common mistakes young scholars or young faculty make. One is to read the literature, which is very recent, like one year, two year publications from a few journals. So they're very narrow, narrow in their approach to seeking knowledge. Whereas my view that knowledge is more, you need to have the breath. And you have the breath in two ways. One is to read journals all over the map not necessarily journal in your specialization, even though you are doing your doctorate or you are focusing on research. Publications can be narrow, 
but the foundational knowledge has to be very, very broad. And I've been very surprised in every discipline I find in the business schools that people do not know history very well. They do not do historical research at all. They have no idea. They don't know anything beyond, as I said, two, three, four, five years of knowledge. Some of the best places to learn knowledge surprisingly has been in books. If you go back before the rise of academic journals, classical writings were all written by in books, whether it's Adam Smith, Karl Marx in economics, Alfred Marshall, for example, Lord Keynes, John Maynard Keynes. These are top, top economists and they always wrote books. They did not write articles. Seminal knowledge even today is in books because in books, you have the freedom to express what you want to say. So that's one key mistake young scholars make, very narrow, narrow understanding of the world. And then they start teaching because they only know that much, they teach the same thing. So it becomes narrower and narrower and narrower, which is a key problem right now. Second thing is that rather than create something on your own, there's a tendency to quickly replicate somebody else's work in a different context, like from one country to the other country, or in a different industry, something like that. So replication to me is not creativity. It's more like craft. It's more like uh, a, a person, you know, a, a, a handicraft person, what you call mechanical guy, replicates the same thing. Automobile maker, for example, replicates the same thing. He's not building a new car. He's not designing a new car. And I think that's another major issue uh, because if you read the articles in top journals in international business or in strategy management, it's all replication. There's nothing really that, that says, stands out and says, aha. There are a few exceptions. That's the second problem. And the third problem is that we are driven more by what the reviewers want us to say and the editor wants us to write as opposed to our own views. Unfortunately, the review process is so bad where the reviewers dictate and each reviewer has their own risk expertise so they have their own perspective. So in analytics, especially like marketing analytics, you know, if you're trained as a Bayesian, you will think differently than if you're trained in stochastic processes, or if you're trained into linear programming, or if you're trained into modeling, etc. And you will never agree with the other as to which methodology is right or wrong. So as a reviewer, you basically say, use my technology that I am familiar with. I've done very well with the technology and you begin to force on the creative mind, limit the creative mind from creating new knowledge. So I find very fascinating. And today you never get published as the article as it is with a constructive comment in the first round, it's always revised and resubmit. And there are top scholars have to go through three rounds. To me, that is actually the demise of a discipline. Driven too much by reviewers views, as opposed to your views. That's my third biggest complaint. And what happens ultimately is that as I talk to my young colleagues, the whole publication process is not a joy, but one of frustration, one of anger, one of sadness. And I'm absolutely shocked to find 
that 50% of our students in management go through clinical depression by the time they are through because we have a new approach of our PhD beyond coursework. You have to write research papers from the year you come in like a scientist. And you go through all the frustrations. So you go in because you're bright people. I mean, to be admitted as a doctor student is not an easy job. I mean, you've done so well. You are less than one-tenth of one percent of the population. You've been brilliant. And for the first time, somebody damages your self-esteem, your self-image, self-confidence. So what's the solution? Uh, the solution is unfortunately nothing short-term. Uh, the solution is, there are three solutions. One is to have self-confidence and do what you enjoy doing. Have a passion in your research. If you don't have a passion, it's a burnout, any job. So you have to do things which are passionate to you because then you can put up all the obstacles. Second one is to go to an institution which does not have the pressure of just publications has a balanced view about publications. They may not be the top institution, but it gives you happiness in life. Gives you the freedom to do what you want to do. Remember in business, we can always earn more in industry. We can always be entrepreneurs, but we choose academics because we are seeking knowledge. You wanna contribute something. And then if it is not a passion of your own, as I said, it's a burnout. And so that's the other problem. Long-term solution is to abolish the tenure system altogether. This whole cycle about six years you're on probation and unless you're shown something new knowledge creation, you are, you are a worthless human being kind of a notion you create in the mind of tenure track professors, which is a key problem. And many people don't make tenure at top universities in the first six to eight years they become advanced assistants some other place, get more time and ultimately produce something. And it's absolutely incredible to watch how many people who published well till they got tenured and afterwards they stopped publishing because that's not their passion. They did it like a job, performance appraisal. And to me, that is not good for the discipline nor for the scholar. Thank you. Uh, last question. What's the question that I should have asked you about heavens? Uh, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, you have not asked me the question as to why I look young at age 83. <laughs> Here you go. Why do you look young at age 83? Uh, because there's a fifth P of marketing, product, price, promotion, place, the fifth P is called packaging. <laughs> <laughs> so it's all about packaging, pretty much. Grecian formula for coloring, dyeing your hair, some <laughs> sort of person to keep your skin young, etc. It's just a joke. But that's what people always are surprised. How do I look young? And my very simple formula, if you're always optimistic in life, and you believe you can unlock the potential of others. In other words, there's some sort of a mission purpose hidden. So I've been very fortunate to have the opportunity to unlock the potential of so many people 
which is why I enjoy the academic life. After 25, 30 years, a person in the audience or a student who worked with you says, you made a difference in my life, which is why I started two foundations to encourage ultimate purpose of all human beings is to unlock the potential of others. Definitely the mission of a corporation, the mission of a nation even. If a nation knows how to unlock the potential of its people, it always thrives. Citizens don't rebel. Citizens don't leave. Citizens don't flee. Because you are focused on your citizens, not on yourself. So unlocking the potential and of course, corollary is that, how do you make ordinary people extraordinary? Which is why the coaches do that. They identify a raw talent. It's like a rough diamond. A good diamond cutter knows how to cut, polish and get the brilliance out and the value add out in the process. You appreciate the diamond, but you don't know who the diamond cutter is. And I will take last comment I'll make. If you take a grain of wheat, an agricultural commodity, and make it into a loaf of bread, the value add is only about three times, maybe four times. If you take a rough diamond and polish it, the value add is about 15 times. But if you take a human being, the rough diamond is an industrial raw material. Now you take a human being, biological raw material, and you polish, nurture, mentor, the value add is infinite. I relate to that because that's my experience. <laughs> I would have never imagined I would be a professor in my life. I would be a typical small merchant shopkeeper, less than high school educated. I would be what in India we call it panwala, <laughs> selling, you know, those oh, condiments kind of stuff. But I'm a professor now. Totally unimaginable. So all of us have potential like that. And if the society can think about, and if the international business organizations can think about, or AIB can think about, that the purpose of the whole organization is to unlock the potential of others, other members, other stakeholders, whatever they are, I think the world will be much better off. Thank you. I learned a lot. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, this was uh, quite interesting. Thank you so much, Jagdish. Thank you.